Well, good morning. Patty and I just got back from our vacation here this week, and uh, thank you for your prayers. We've been praying for all of us as we maybe take a little break from our regular responsibilities in life, and I trust that you've had a good summer. Um, we're praying for the fires. How many have noticed it's had a great impact on our whole nation? It's probably the worst season of fires I've seen uh, in my life. So let's keep praying for God to do that. Why don't we stand this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer? And let's just uh, open our hearts to God. I, I believe God wants to do something special today in our lives, and He wants us to re- be open to it. If we have an open heart, it's amazing what God's Spirit can do in our lives. And I, I, you know, I, I don't know if you came here today expecting anything, but I'm expecting for you. How's that? And I'm expecting God to do a powerful work inside of your heart to make your week even better than what it would have been had you not been here. How's that? So let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you love us with an everlasting love. As Pastor Mark reminded us, Lord, you're a good God, and your goodness is evident everywhere we see. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would open our hearts and minds as we hear your word, as we receive not just the word of God, but the spirit of the word, we receive your Holy Spirit today, that you would empower us and shape our lives and that you'd fill us to overflowing, Lord, that we would leave this place, Lord, as amazing ambassadors for your kingdom, that the life of Christ would just exude from our lives, Father, and it would impact our, our home life, it would impact our workplace, uh, where school, when we begin school, Father, it will impact that realm, wherever realm we're walking in. Even when we're on vacation, Lord, we have an opportunity to share our lives with others, Lord. What an impact that does have. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles this morning uh, to 1 Corinthians. I'll finish my Revelation series, Lord willing, next Sunday, all right? But we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians and look at this incredible passage from chapter 12. Uh, Calvin Ratz uh, pastored a church uh, a number of years ago, and he shares the following incident. He could hear, overhear this conversation from around his office, uh, and, he, and he could hear the, the lady from the missions committee saying, don't your kids do anything but play basketball? It was the voice of our gentle but fearless woman's leader. Surely you know we're preparing for a missions banquet. We expect to raise $10,000 for an orphanage in Zaire. And our banquet has priority over your silly basketball game. Then the youth leader responds back, this is no silly basketball game. We've been planning this for months. We've invited a Christian professional basketball player who's going to come and share his testimony and his faith, and we're expecting 15 unsaved teenagers to hear this presentation. What do you suggest I say to our teens if we cancel this event to try and win their friends so that we can send money to Africa? And so there they were, two leaders in the church arguing about the use of the one space. And so what had happened was uh, they had... Both received permission to use the gym on the same night. It was a communication glitz, and that had created a lot of problems for this congregation. And he said, their argument kind of interested me, because I began to think about it. What's more important? Which is the more important ministry? What is more significant, raising $10,000 for orphans in Africa or reaching 50 unsafe teenagers with the gospel? Now, help me think. That's kind of a good question. Kind of creates a little tension there. 
But then he went on to think about it. You know, so often in life, we can, we can actually get so focused on what we're doing, we don't actually see what other people around us are doing. And we may both be doing incredibly great things. He said, you know, the egocentric person is usually a person caught up with themselves. And then he says the ethnocentric person is the person who believes their culture is better than everybody else's. But he said the ergocentric is perhaps less understood. It's the attitude that surfaces when we become so engrossed in our task and what we're doing in our ministry, we have so much emotional energy invested into it that we forget the legitimacy of the others around who are doing something just as significant but maybe totally different than what we're doing. And he says ergocentricity can actually become lethal especially in relationship with one another as Christians because so often what we're doing is so important. I mean, both things are critical. Both are important. But how do you determine, you know, what to do? And he didn't go into explaining how he settled that problem. You're all wondering what happened. You know, I don't know either. I just raised the question. You know, one of the subtle traps of the enemy of our souls is to create a context where there's misunderstanding in relationships. How many know that's, that is true? And so often what happens is we feel we're right. You know, we have this very strong perception that our viewpoint on a situation is exactly the right viewpoint. And then we run into someone equally as determined that their viewpoint is exactly the right viewpoint. And it's a collision course. And we see that even in marriage relationships, Right. Yeah, just crash, you know. And, and both of them probably have some measure of legitimacy. And what happens is we get wounded, we get hurt, we take an offense. It affects our relationship with one another. And the person that's actually winning is the devil. Because what he's trying to do is to bait us into taking an offense with some other person in our lives. And then it diminishes us as a Christian in our effectiveness towards not only that person, but many other people. We don't even realize that. You know, Jesus said something interesting in John's gospel. He said, you know, the the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. And God promises us this amazing, abundant life. And I think we have to be on the alert that there is a spiritual battle going on. And, you know, usually it happens when things are going good. How many... Ever notice that when life is really going good, you got to kind of pay attention because you never know when something will pop up. And you have to be on your guard. And we're not really fighting against flesh and blood. We have to recognize that. So, you know, our spouse is not our enemy. Our kids are not our enemy. Our parents are not our enemy. You know, our workmates are not our enemy. We have a spiritual enemy. and We have to be alert to that. Probably one of the most dynamic and gifted churches in the New Testament was found in the city of Corinth. And it was struggling. I mean, it was an extremely eloquent church. Very, you know, Greeks were noted for their wisdom. And yet pride and arrogance had seeped inside of this church. And they were fighting over a number of things. And they were moving away from a very loving servant attitude towards, you know, entrenching around different personalities, different expressions of the gifts of the Spirit. There was all kinds of problems in this church. And so Paul now is beginning to address the problem in 1 Corinthians. And in chapters 12 to 14, he starts talking about, 
you know, I think spiritual maturity and how the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of a church and how God's Spirit needs to work through various expressions in the church, through different aspects of ministry, through different uh, spiritual giftings, through different uh, leadership functions and all of those things. But what we notice in chapters 12 to 14, there's a chapter 13 sandwiched in between. And many of you probably know what 1 Corinthians 13 is about. It actually talks about love. And I'm going to make an argument today that all the things that we ever do, if they're not, if they're not motivated out of a divine, God's divine nature of love, if love is not the motivation of what we're doing, that what we're about to do is not going to have very much eternal significance. It's actually going to cause grief in the long run, even though we may think that we're doing God's work. And so how to maintain you know, a vibrant, healthy relationship with other people. See, our culture today is in a state of death. How many have kind of figured that out? And, and so the church is the only place where there's life. Do you guys realize that? That we're the purveyors of life. Because if you have Christ, you have life. But if you don't have Christ, you're in a state of death. And so when you're in a state of death, everything you touch dies. That's the nature of it. You can only give what you have. You only beget or you only you know, bring out what you are. And so if you're in a state of death, you're always bringing about death. Relationships around you are crumbling. you know. And if we allow sin to begin to reign in our lives, even as Christians, then we start begetting death. And relationships fragment and separate. And so we see so much withdrawal in people's lives. You know, It's amazing how immature this culture really is today. You know, people don't know how to work through problems. We don't really, you know, we talk about love, but it's, it's a false understanding of love. It's kind of a centered love of, you know, I'm the person that needs to be loved and you're not meeting my needs. See, that, that's a human kind of love. But God wants to do something very dramatic in our lives. He wants to impart into our lives divine love, His love, so that you and I express and manifest the fruit of the Spirit, that love would flow from us, that there would be a joy in our life, that we would be full of peace, and that there would be a gentleness and a kindness, and that there would be forbearance in our life, that we would have the ability to tolerate people and actually love people who don't even love themselves. Isn't that an amazing thing when you have that capacity God puts that grace in your life that you're loving an unlovable person because God actually loves that unlovable person and wants to love them through flesh and blood. He wants to love them through you and through me. And that's what God wants to do in our lives. So God's intention is that we would have a unified congregation in the midst of tremendous diversity. Now, how many recognize in our congregation, we've got people of different, you know, we have, you know, male and female. We have, uh, you know, different ethnicities in our congregation. We have people with totally different experiences, different age levels. Isn't that true? You know, some of you, you know, you look at life through a totally different lens than the person right next to you because of the experiences that you've had in your life. And so everyone in this room is actually different. And we need to understand that what God is trying to do is to get all these different people to be united around one person. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the dominant expression in the life of the congregation is the expression of love one for another. And that you and I serve one another and care for one another and are concerned about one another. And boy, that's a lot different than what most people get outside of the walls of the church. 
And when we allow the way of this world, its values to seep into our thinking, pretty soon we can bring those values into the church, and then we'll have conflict and difficulty. And so they were having that in the church at Corinth. So I asked the question, you know, how can we get to that place where we're not threatened by each other's differences? How many think that's a good question? You know, how can I learn to accept people that are unlike me? How can I learn to actually value and treasure people who I don't fully understand? You see, and I think one of the things that has to happen is that, you know, you and I actually uh, have to become secure in who we are. There has to be personal security. And, and, and what I really mean is that we, first of all, we need to understand who we are in Christ. That's step number one. You know, to become a secure person, you have to know who you are. And what I'm saying is who you are is not based on who you were. Excuse me, pastor? No, who you were before you were a Christian is a certain person. Who you are now as a Christian is a different person, and it's moving towards becoming more Christ-like. And even if I grew up in the church, you know, I'm learning about how to be a person from all the people around me. And a lot of times the attitudes are wrong, the thinking is wrong, I'm being taught a lot of wrong stuff, and a lot of wrong stuff is being modeled for me. And so I have to go back and find out what should I be like? And as I read the Bible, I start to look at the person of Jesus. And that's who I need to be like. And unless I'm like Jesus, I have a long ways to go. I'm still maturing. I'm still growing up. I'm still becoming like Christ. And so when I understand who I am in Christ, and I begin to know that Christ loves me so completely, so unconditionally, then I can begin to experience that love in my life, and then I can begin to love other people the same way. I begin to realize it's not about me, and as I give my life away, I start finding life. As, it's, as I start forgetting about myself, and I begin to serve others out of a love for Christ, I discover love and joy, and I, you know, there's a whole bunch of good stuff that starts happening inside of my own soul. You know, it becomes less about me, and that's powerful. And isn't that funny? We get happy. You know, the happiest people are the ones that are forgetting about themselves. The most miserable people are totally focused on themselves. And that's true. That's the way it works. Nextly, we need to have an understanding of our contribution and be content to be what God made us to be. You know, some of you have a beautiful singing voice. That's a gift from God. Some of you, you don't have a beautiful singing voice. I'm sorry. You know, that's just not what you have, you know? But maybe you have an amazing analytical mind and maybe you have a servant's heart or whatever it is. Whatever God has wired you up to be, be the best you that God's made you to be. Don't try to be like anybody else. One of the most liberating things for me as a young pastor is, you know, pastors, you know, you're trying to emulate who you're going to be like. And I just made a decision, you know, really early in my ministry, I'm going to try to be like Jesus, I'm going to try to copy him. I'm going to try to emulate him. And, and I noticed something when I started meeting great Christian leaders. You know what? They were totally different than each other. And they had totally different strengths. You know, I remember going to a conference and I actually met John Maxwell. And, you know, John Maxwell says, you gotta, you're in the people business. You've got to know everybody's name. And then I had Dr. Leith Anderson, you know, for a, a, a graduate course. And he pastored the church about the same size. And he goes, I don't know anybody's name. I can't remember anybody's name. You know, and, and he was leading a great church. And it wasn't that he didn't care for people. He just couldn't remember people's names. You know, you know John was memorizing them and leading 
faith, he couldn't have a clue. He was just good in another area of life. And I began to realize, you know, if you try to be like John Maxwell and you're not like him, it's not going to work for you, you know? And if you're trying to be like Letha Anderson, you're, and, and I went and met another pastor, and he was totally unlike those two guys. And I was starting to say, the Spirit of God says, just be who you are. And it's freeing. Isn't that true? You don't have to be somebody else. Do you know when God created you, he threw them all away. So if you're looking around going, well, there's nobody like me, I'm going, you're right, you're unique. God designed you that way. And so we have to learn to accept who we are and be the best person that God's designed us to be and not try to be like anybody else. How freeing is that? The only person I think we should try to be like is Christ. That's it. You know, and then the third thing is we have to value what other people bring into the life of the community and appreciate them rather than feeling threatened or envious of them or writing them off as if we don't need them. Those are sad situations. We need to see everybody as vitally needed and they're bringing a contribution and you may not understand what they're bringing, but God knows what they're bringing. So we come to this transition in the letter, and Paul's been correcting them because they've had all these relational difficulties and breakups. And I think it's because, you know, we'd use the word in the old days, carnal, but I'm going to use the word worldly. In other words, what society was talking about had infiltrated the minds of them, the believers. Our culture is talking to us all the time. How many know that's true? And that voice is far louder many times than the voice of God. Isn't that true? And how do, you, how do you silence the voice of this culture? Well, I think a number of ways. One, you can become a daily Bible reader. Then you get in the voice of God impacting you, and you can, okay, that God is saying this, and the culture is saying that. I'm going to go with God. Okay? And then I'm, I'm a regular church attender. I come, and I worship God, and I hear sermons explained to me. And how many know after I leave a service, many times I feel I've experienced the presence of God because my brothers and sisters are all bringing God's presence, and so it intensifies God's presence on a Sunday. And then I hear a message that's designed to encourage and inspire and remind because a lot of times I'm saying things, you go, I already know that. But how many times you go, oh, I needed to be reminded of that, right? Isn't that the way it works? Sure, I've already heard this before, Pastor. Oh, but I needed to be reminded. You know how many times I sit in a church as a congregant too, and I go, yeah, I know that. Thank you, Lord, for reminding me. Today you're telling me, hey, pay attention. You need to hear this. I go, thank you. So in this transitional point, this is what it says here in 1 Corinthians 12.1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, it's interesting, that word spiritual gifts, okay? That's a translator's decision. As a matter of fact, usually the Greek word for gifts is the word in Greek charisma. But that's not the word that's translated here. The word that's translated here is pneumatikon, which is the word for spirit. Pneuma is the, the spirit, okay? And it could easily be translated now about spiritualities, but most people wouldn't understand what he's talking about. So he uses, you know, translators use, you know, the word gifts. As a matter of fact, G. Campbell, uh, uh, Campbell Morgan says, we do not employ that plural in English, and probably that is why this word gift or gifts has been supplied in order to explain the word. And if you had a King James version, it's actually when the word gifts is there, it's in italics. And you know, every time the King James, I don't know if you guys use that translation, but every time italics is used, that's a word that the translators are supplying so that you can gain a sense of its meaning. 
A lot of interesting things about translation. I won't go into it all, but that's fascinating to me. So what is Paul trying to explain in the 12th chapter? He's trying to explain to us, this is the nature of spiritual maturity. This is the nature of how the Spirit works and how the manifestation of the Spirit is in operation. And it actually covers more than just this idea of, you know, you know, speaking in tongues or the word of wisdom or faith or any of that. It's also speaking about things like love. It's speaking about things like how to have order in the church. It's speaking how to honor each other. It's speaking about the resurrection of Jesus. These are all spiritualities. These are all things that he wants them to understand because they're going to impact the way they're going to live their life. Because the bottom line, and it's going to hit you with impact, is simply this. God is interested in our spiritual development and maturity. He wants us to understand things. He doesn't want us to be uninformed. He doesn't want us to carry our way of thinking from the culture and bring it into the church. Because every time we do that, it causes grief in the church. Okay? That's what he's talking about. So here in the 12th chapter, I'm going to only look at two things that reveal the spiritual maturity in the believer's life. And the first one is their confession of faith. And what I mean by that is their understanding of who they are in Christ and how they need to operate in community. Because, you know, I think building community and building relationships is actually hard work. How many say that's true? In the society, we just throw people aside. You know, we're just withdrawing from people. That's an unhealthy approach to conflict, by the way. You're not going to mature. You're just going to keep burning through people. And you're going to have the same issues over and over again. Some of you, that's all you've been doing. And I want, I want you to grow beyond that stage. I want you to be able to work through things with people and actually have a healthier and better relationship because you've worked through differences. Now you're going to have a more mature relationship. How many think that's interesting? That's what we need to learn. Okay? Now, listen to what he says. First of all, he says, ignorance generally leads to problems. How many know that's true? When you don't know something, it can hurt you. It can bite you. That's not a good place to be. Paul has already said in this first verse, he doesn't want them to remain uninformed or ignorant. He wants them to understand some things. He points out before their, that their faith in Christ, before their faith in Christ, this is where they were living. Notice what he says in verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Now that's a fascinating statement. He's saying, listen, you're either serving God or you're serving an idol. And then he describes what idols are. They're mute. In other words, they don't have ability to communicate. You know, it's like, read the, read the Psalms. You know, it says the idols, they don't see, they don't hear, they don't speak. So it's no use praying to them. They don't hear you anyways. You know, they're not going to communicate to you. They don't speak. But idols are those things in our lives. You know, we see it in other parts of the world where people are bowing down to idols. But in North America, we're still worshiping idols. You say, we are? Absolutely. We're worshiping the idol of materialism. When we put you know, finances as the per- first priority in our life, that's the God of mammon. That's the God of materialism. We're bowing down to that. See? A lot of Christians really don't even know it. They're actually idol worshipers. They don't know that. They think that because they're worshiping Jesus, they're, they're delivered from that, but not necessarily. That's what Elijah was talking about. How long can you serve God and Baal? See, we try to do both sometimes. And Jesus said it's impossible to serve God and materialism. You have to make a choice. Because either you're going to love the one and hate the other. Eventually, if you're serving materialism, you're going to reject Christ. That's a powerful statement I just said. And there's a lot of Christians that are serving materialism. 
You know, you can be serving, you know, pleasure or power. You can be serving yourself. You can make yourself your own God. How do you do that is, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm playing God. That's an idol. And it's actually flying in the face of the God who created us. The idea here, according to Leon Morris, is like a condemned person being led away. He says it this way, pagans are seen not as men freely following the God's their intellects are fully approved, but as under constraint, people who do not know better. Isn't that sad? People don't even know that they're serving idols. Think of these idols. They're, they're dominating our culture today. And yet when the Holy Spirit comes into the human heart, the first utterance is Jesus is Lord. We're breaking free from these strongholds in our lives. These are the strongholds that are destroying us. And we don't even realize it. The scriptures teach us that when we call upon the name of the Lord, we're going to be saved. And so Paul now goes on to talk about genuine spiritual authenticity in this confession of faith. You know, this this test is simply this. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is not talking about people who speak in mockery, you know, and they can say Jesus is Lord. That's not what he's talking about. Again, I'm going to quote Leon Morris. He says it this way. He's saying that the words can be uttered with full meaning only under the influence of the Holy Spirit. The Lordship of Christ is not a human discovery. It is a discovery that is made and can be made only when the Spirit is at work in the human heart. And what he means by that is simply that, you know, when we, when we cry Jesus as Lord, it's because the work of the Spirit inside of us is crying out to him and acknowledging him as Lord. That's what he's saying. Okay? So just saying words doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's the work of the Spirit inside of us. It's an acknowledgement. And whenever we move into the manifestations of God's Spirit, we must keep in mind that these manifestations are there to help us to get to know Jesus. It's about exalting Christ. You know, Dr. Gordon Fee, I actually have heard him speak and teach. This guy's a Pentecostal scholar. Let me tell you, he's fiery when he's talking. He's He's passionate. But this is what he says about the Holy Spirit. I think he's the foremost New Testament scholar right now, and he's speaking on the Holy Spirit when he speaks about the Holy Spirit. This is what he says. The presence of the Holy Spirit in power and gifts makes it easy for God's people to think of the power and gifts as the real evidence of the Spirit's presence. Not so for the Apostle Paul. The ultimate criteria of the Spirit's activity is the exaltation of Jesus as Lord. Is that powerful? Okay, whatever takes away from that, even if they be legitimate expressions of the Spirit, begins to move away from Christ to a more pagan fascination with spiritual activity as an end in itself. I'm going to tell you right now, there's a danger in the church that people are moving in this direction. Where, you know, people are making this dichotomy between the Spirit and the Word. Between the Word of God and experience. Let me tell you something right now. When the Holy Spirit is actually doing His greatest work is when He's bringing people into a relationship with Christ. We need to understand that. Don't ever get away from that. Otherwise, you're going to be seduced by deceiving spirits. In the last days, Paul said, deceiving spirits are going to seduce people. You know? So the primary work of the Holy Spirit is the Lordship of Christ. And whenever we move into that manifestation, they should be bringing us to Jesus. We have to guard against human fascination 
with the spiritual gifts as ends in themselves. That's what he's talking about. The gifts are to bring us to Christ, not away from him. Now, think about the work of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes, this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is the result of the Spirit's work. And in Galatians, it says it this way. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. The fruit, notice it's singular. See, I think the other eight elements are adjectives describing what love is. I think these other words describe what love is. I think joy is a descriptive word of love. I think peace is showing us what love looks like. You know, forbearance is a demonstration of love. Kindness is an expression of love. See what I'm getting at? See, what he's saying is, when you and I are full of the Spirit, we will be full of love. Is that amazing? And it's not the kind of love that makes me, you know, feel like, oh, I just feel so good. You know, that's not the kind of love we're talking about here. We're talking about the kind of love that puts up with somebody that's irritable and obnoxious. That's real practical, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I'm, you, know, you know, your spouse gets out of bed on the wrong side of the bed, you know, and having a bad morning, you know, and you're just as sweet as ever, you know? That's when you're loving your spouse. See? Are we catching on? How many are kind of catching on, you know, trying to help us to catch on here? You know, you go to work and there's a grumpy coworker and they're nasty, and, you know, you're just real nice to them, you know? You're expressing love. They go, how can you? And the other co-workers are walking around. Man, stay away from so-and-so. They're, they're like, they, they're, you know, somebody bit them or something. You know, they're walking around growling all the time. You're just loving on them. They go, how do you handle that person? See, we need to be living a life of love. And that people can look at our lives and go, wow, this is, we're manifesting love to people. See, we're faithful, we're good, we're kind, we're gentle, you know. We have self-control. You know, wouldn't it be awesome? And there's a day coming we won't need any more laws. We can throw all the laws away. That day is coming. When Jesus is going to rule and reign, I'm talking about that through Revelation. Just think of that moment, no more laws. Why? Because love will be ruling. And when you have love in your heart, you don't need the law. But when there's no love, you have to have laws. And you notice our society, all we're doing is packing up the laws. We have more laws. I don't even know all the laws. Do you guys know all the laws? There's too many. They're just, every time there's a problem, we build another law. How many know that? We're just trying to hem people in. You know, we've got to protect it, you know, hem everybody in. What we really need is a loving explosion on our planet. We need people full of the love of God. Then you won't have to worry about the laws. Yeah, that's what we need to get to, but we're not there yet. We're a long ways from that. It's the key to having relationship. It's the key to building community. It's the key to having meaningful relationships in marriage, even. Now, I know it takes two people to be married. I already get that. You could say, hey, Pastor, I'm a loving person. I've been loving my spouse. And the person, you know, just cuts me off and wants nothing to do with me and run off with somebody else. You can't control that. I get it. I understand that. But on our side of the equation, are we a loving person? That's the question I'm raising today. And then we see this unity of the Spirit that it's coming from God. It's coming from the Spirit. It's coming from this love. And Paul says it this way in Ephesians. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace because there's one body and one Spirit. God is going to express himself through all of our lives differently. This should not threaten us. We should value and appreciate people that are unlike us. 
You know, I'm so thankful that there are people out there that are unlike me and they can help my deficiencies. Aren't you appreciative of that? They make you look better because they come along and prop you up because you're not good in that area. Thank God for that. The Spirit is expressing Himself through our lives differently. Look at verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit that's distributing them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work. In summary, there are different gifts, services, and workings, all originating from God. And what is the purpose of all of this? I put this verse down because I want you to see it. I think it's building to this verse. It says, so now each one, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for what reason? For the common good. It's not to build you up. It's not to make you like a superstar. It's to make everybody else benefit. Your, your life and my life, your gifts and my gifts are designed to help other people. That's what he's telling us. It's to build up the others. These gifts are given so that in Christ, that Christ's body will benefit. It's for all of our good. And then Paul lists nine spiritual gifts which can be broken down into three categories. Prophecy, tongues, interpretation, those are utterance gifts. Wisdom gifts, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, word of discerning of spirits. And finally the power gifts, faith, healing, and miracles. I'm not going to spend time explaining it. I could preach a sermon on each one, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just pointing out the, this important text. Now all of these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So you and I don't walk, hey, God, you know, I, I want the gift of this. God doesn't work that way, folks. I'm sorry, he's, you know, I want to be a healer. No, no, it doesn't work that way. God decides who's going to have what operation, what gift, okay? We just relax. Hey, if I don't have that gift, somebody else has it. Do you know why God does it that way? So none of us can walk around and go, I got all nine gifts. I don't need anybody. You know, right? No, I've got one gift. And, you know, if I don't have the gift of healing and somebody else does, I'm going to go, I'm going to go over there and ask them to pray for me. Because it seems like when they pray, people get healed. That's their gift, you know? Aren't you glad for that person in the church family? That we can go to them and say, hey, would you pray for me in this area? Somebody else has the gift of faith. You know, when they pray, it just seems like mountains start moving in our lives. You know, wouldn't that be great? You know, hey, where, where what do I have how am I wired? And what can I do to bring blessing to other people? So it's God who's deciding which gifts are expressed through which saints. So we're kind of living in an interesting time. You know, we have a high view of humanity, a low view of God, or no view of God. But the reality is we need to have a right view of God and a right view of ourselves and say, this is who I am. And and I'm going to move on to my second point here because a lot of times what happens in our lives is that we don't have the correct we don't have a correct appreciation for ourselves and for others which is sad you know here we have a divine design that we need to discover and then develop and we've seen already in this chapter it is God that determines who gets what gifts let's let him be the boss right he's he's in charge second point is simply is their conduct this is how you know a person is a spiritual person. This is how you know a person is maturing. You know, our behavior is an expression of what's happening inside of us. You know, it's an offshoot of our attitudes and our thoughts. How we relate to others is determined by what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about others. 
when people are different than us, we can be tempted to depreciate either ourselves, say, I'm not good enough. Look how good that person is. Or we can depreciate them. You know, I'm better than they are. Or I'm jealous. You know, isn't it sad some of the behavior people do? You know, jealousy is an awful thing or envy is a terrible thing. Instead of just celebrating, hey, you know what? When somebody does something good in their family, yay, cheer them on, right? We should be doing that. We should all be cheerleaders for each other and, and be celebrating. And, and we should be, as, you know, if, if one of you does super good, I'm proud. I'm going, they're on, they're on my team. I'm proud of them. I'm so glad they're in our church family. Look how awesome they are, you know? Isn't that great? Isn't that awesome? We can root each other on, cheer each other on. That's what it's supposed to be, you know? So what is the danger of self-depreciation? You know what I mean by self-depreciation? We're putting ourselves down. You know, we, we don't see ourselves as being of any real value. Basically, what we're saying is, God, you created junk. Look at me. I'm junk. Can I just say this? God does not create junk. God does not create junk. You are designed by God. And don't tell me, well, I don't have anything to offer, Pastor. Liar. You have something to contribute. You have something to add. And when you hold back what you have to add, we are all the losers. We lose. But when you add your contribution, we win. Isn't that amazing? We're better together than we are apart. Listen to what it says. Verse 12. Just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all of its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. We're the body of Christ. Christ is the head. Galatians, Colossians tells us that. We're the body, right? Now, how many have ever had a part of your body wasn't working right? How many go, that's problematic? Right? So you want every part working, right? It says in verse 15, uh, now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Could you imagine the foot says, I'm out of here. (laughs) Really? Don't leave me now. I'll be standing on one foot. If two of them leave, I'm I'm in big time trouble. I'm crawling out of here, right? I mean, you cannot say that. He goes, It would not for that reason stop being part of the body. Paul is just telling you how ludicrous this is. To say that you're not valuable and you have a contribution is is to act as if you're not part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. You're still part of it, even if you're not going to function like it. And we know that atrophy is a dangerous thing. I was helping someone yesterday, and there are, Young person, very nice young person, and their foot started sending tremendous pain messages, and eventually, it was a very rare condition, eventually their brain told the person that their leg doesn't exist anymore. Can you imagine? So now they couldn't walk. Their brain shut off because of the pain they were experiencing. That's a very rare disorder. And I was listening to this, and they're just, it's taken months and months and months, you know, to try to, you know, and they're trying to, you know, they're trying to explain to me how to, how their brain is, has to be re-talking to your brain to tell them. Could you imagine that kind of work happening? But I think a lot of churches function like that. You know, Somebody goes, I'm, I'm just not a part of this. You know, One of the ancient Roman, Roman fables uh, says this, the stomach one time appeared to be doing nothing. 
but was enjoying all the benefits, you know, eating all the food. And the other members of the body were feeding it, and they finally got, you know, they, they were fed up. This one member does nothing but eats. I mean, receives the benefit, you know. And so they decided to starve it. But they found out afterwards that they were making themselves weak. You know, all members of the body work for the common good, even the stomach, right? All right. Listen to what the Apostle Paul describes as maturity or how it goes, comes about in the church life. And he describes it this way in Ephesians. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service or to work to do the ministry. And so this is something I learned when I was in college as a young pastor because, you know, at that time when I first came out, there was a cultural understanding the pastor did all the ministry and people paid him for that and the rest of them just cheered him on. And I came into the ministry going, that's all wrong. My job is to train you to do the ministry. That was my understanding. And so we've tried to do that in this church, that we have focused on trying to develop you to discover your gifts and how you fit in the body and how you can serve in the body and that we try to release you to do your ministry in the body so that the whole body is going to benefit so that the body of Christ, which is the church, you and me, may be built up. So what happens when only one member is trying to build up the body and the rest are all sitting down there watching? body's not going to be built up. All people are going to do is criticize. Hey, you're not doing it fast enough, hard enough, good enough. Right? Isn't that what happens? How many have ever gone to a sporting event? You're sitting in the stand you're yelling down there at that guy. Hey, what's wrong with you? You know? Yeah, well, he's down there. And it's a lot harder being down there than it is up there in the seats. You know? You, know you know what they say about a football game? It's 22 people desperately in need of rest with 22,000 people in desperate need of exercise. <laughs> That's about right, you know. And that's not what we want in the church. We want everybody participating. It says, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. So how does that come about? As every member does its part. And become mature. So if we don't have it this way, if we're not all involved and and, and we're trying to motivate you to do that because we want to become mature. That's the goal. And And so what's maturity look like? Attaining to the measure of the fullness of Christ. In other words, the nature of maturity is Christ-likeness. See, that's when we know we're growing up. We're becoming like Jesus. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. So what he's saying is when we're spiritually immature, we get sucked in by every crazy teaching. Now, just to illustrate this for you, how many have been around a little kid and you have an idea, they like to put things in their mouth? Anybody seen that? They're just shoving stuff in there and sometimes you go, that's not good for you, right? How many have seen that? Kids will put things in their mouth that's not good for them. How many know that's true? Well, that's what he's talking about. They have no discernment. They're still learning, you know, right? Right? They're trying to learn. But if you're not watching them, they're going to shove junk in their mouth there that, you know, it's not that good for them. True? That's what Christians do too. New Christians, they're just shoving everything in their mouth. Hey, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't, 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 don't be eating that stuff. That's local weed. You know, <laughs> you'll really, you know, you know. That's demonic teaching. Get away from that stuff, you know. Then we will all be able to discern the truth from the false, which is another sign of spiritual maturity. Instead, instead, speak the truth. How? Pastor, I'm just telling you the truth. Yeah, but how are you telling it to me? Right? 
oh, I, I have this concern, but are we doing it in love? It's, it's okay to communicate, but we have to say it's got to be in love. You know, when, I, when I'm talking to Patty or my children, is this in love? Come on now. Come on now. Well, it's the truth. I don't really care if it's the truth, you know. You can do a lot of damage with the truth. You can destroy a lot of people with the truth. You can hurt a lot of people with the truth. You know, sometimes when people say some stuff, sometimes I just keep my mouth shut. Because you know what? There's no response to that. And, you know, sometimes just let them think that for a while. Because, you know, actually when you tell me some stuff that I think is crazy, a lot of times I don't even just straighten you right off, right off the bat. I just know, if you stay in the church long enough, I'll preach on that and we'll talk about that later. <laughs> He'll start thinking, oh, he, he has a different idea. You know, I don't have to, I don't feel it's my job to straighten everybody out. Some people, I think that they think that's their job. Running around straightening everybody out. And you know what? Then they wonder why they don't have any friends. <laughs> it's just a thought. Okay. For he, uh, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its so if nobody's doing any work nothing's going to be built up but it's it, but we can do the work but we can be fighting how many i just kind of opened the illustration right well we're doing god's work pastor bless god yeah i know but you got to do it in love right how many see what i'm getting at so we we all have to participate but we all have to do it in love everybody get it that's the point of the sermon how many are catching on are we getting it okay just checking Okay, now this is interesting. Paul goes on to say this in verse 22. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are what? Indispensable. How many of us? What? Yeah, the part that you're always caring for, that's the, the part that's indispensable is the part you have to care for. That's really messing with my head. Does that mess with your head? It does mine a little bit. So maybe you don't appreciate what you bring to the body, but you know what? God does, you know? Or maybe, you know, you have to understand God is deciding who does what and how they do it. Or you may resent and question what others are doing, but be careful what you're doing because they're all God's servants. Yeah. It says verse 18, but in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. So I've got to be careful if I'm criticizing another part of the body. God goes, yeah, but I put that there. Oh. Yeah, it's not, it's God's orchestrating things here. He says, then we, then we have this other problem, you know, the danger of depreciating other people, you know, putting others down. The eye cannot say to the hand, well, I don't need you. Can't say that. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. That's a pretty messed up body, right? On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. What we need to do is appreciate every part of the body. And I think it starts with the right attitude. William Barclay says, whenever we begin to think about our own importance in the Christian church, the possibility of real Christian work is gone. In other words, if you think you're indispensable, that's a bad attitude. Not one of us is indispensable but we're all needed. You see the difference? Because sometimes we get into this mode. If I wasn't there, they couldn't do it without me. 
No, they can do it with, God can do it without any of us. But God makes a decision to need every one of us. And I believe he does that so that as we are participating, we're all growing. It's forcing us to do and be better people. I I can honestly say, becoming a pastor by God's call has made me grow up. I had to do things I didn't want to do. I had to discipline myself in areas I didn't want to discipline myself. You know, you, you must think, oh, pastor, you just love studying. Yeah, most of the time I do. But there's sometimes I really don't want to study today, but I still have to do it. You follow what I'm getting at? Yeah. Okay. Why does God allow some to be weaker than others? It's an opportunity to teach other people to care for others. We get to learn lessons. And, you know, sometimes we can learn from people that, you know, you know I walk around here and I go, man, that person is so amazing the way they serve. I'm learning how to serve better because of them. Or that person, you know, we have, we have a person in our church and they're so generous. I'm learning generosity from that person. Or you follow what I'm saying? Or I see another person and they're, they're going way above and beyond. They're caring for people. I go, I got to learn to care at that level. I'm, I'm being challenged by some of you to be a better person because of the way you live your life. And I hope you're being challenged by me. You know, that's the thing. We should be challenging each other, not because we're verbalizing it, but the way we live, people are being challenged by it. But let me close with this. After hearing, after hearing grew worse, well, go back. Even the most gifted people need other people. It was said of, a, of his conducting of the orchestra was anything but pleasant. He wanted to conduct, but his style was very unusual. His memory was poor. His hearing was worse. During soft passages, he would crouch extremely low. Then as the thing grew louder, he would often leap into the air, even shouting to the orchestra. As his hearing grew worse, the orchestra would try and ignore him and get their cues from the first violinist. Finally, the musicians pleaded with him to stop conducting and concentrate on creating music, which he finally did. His name was Beethoven, a great composer, but an awful conductor. What am I saying? We all have a place to fit. Just because we're good in one area doesn't mean we're going to be good in every area, right? So we need one another. You know what I've discovered? That we cannot grow in isolation. And what I'm seeing in our culture today is the more we move away from God, the more disjointed and more broken we're becoming, the less relational we're becoming, and the less of a sense of community spirit is happening. But the closer I get to God, I notice the opposite happens. The more there's, you know, because to, to actually exercise love, you have to exercise it on somebody. That negates isolation right there. Isn't that true? And so now I'm in community. So when, when somebody says, I'm a Christian, I don't need Christians, I'm going, that, that's, that's so crazy in my mind, you know, because that's not even biblical. You know, they're, they're, in a, they're in a state of self-deception. We, and we're all, some people say, I only need these six Christians in my life and nobody else. I don't get to pick who's in my family. You know, they're born in this family. And that's, you know, the people that are coming to this church, that's the people God's bringing here. I'm going, those are the people I'm called to serve and love. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. And it's not just me, folks. It's you too. Right? Because when God puts you here, he's going, okay, I want you to love that person over there. Yeah, but I don't like those kind of people. (laughs) God goes, yeah, but just think, after a while, you're going to love those kind of people. And when that happens, that's because you grew. How many see that? 
That's because you're maturing. Let's stand this morning. You know, my my prayer is simply this today. I'm going to just ask quick questions and we're going to pray. Do you value other people? Do you have a right attitude towards yourself? Are you devaluing yourself? Maybe you feel you're unimportant or maybe or possibly you're trying to be someone else and something that God never designed you to be. Do you feel a sense of belonging? Are you involved in a meaningful way in the life of the church? Have you taken an offense by what someone else has said or done? Have you grown critical of others? All of these things are impacting your relationship with God. How many say that's true? Because I'm called to be forgiving. I'm called to be loving. I'm called to be putting up with, forbearing. Aren't I not? I'm called to be kind and gentle. And so what I thought I would do today as we close the service, God's Holy Spirit is love. God is love. And you know, I realized something. I'm not that loving. As a matter of fact, my natural being, I'm not a loving person. And I hate to tell you, but you're not either. You and I need the divine love in our hearts so we can love each other. And that's the the lubricant that holds us together. And you know, we're not going to be abrasive and rubbing and causing all that friction with each other. But the moment you have lubrication, you know, it actually means that you can work together and you can work together smoothly. And that lubrication in the Bible is love. And I'm, I'm going to pray today that God's Spirit, as we open our hearts and say, you know, Lord, there's room in my heart for more of your love to come inside of me. Because if God's love would fill me, then God's love could ooze out of me. It's going to impact the people around me. And I can't just produce this on my own. I'm just not that nice of a person. But you are, Lord. And if we prayed today and asked God's Spirit to come, His Spirit of love to fill our hearts, what do you think is going to start happening? You think God's going to hear that cry, Lord, would you please forgive me for all the unloving, critical attitudes I've carried this week, in the past weeks? And I, I want those attitudes to change. I want to be full of your Spirit. I want to be full of your love today. I want to exude the love of Christ to every person I come in contact with. Now, some people are not going to like that love. I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to be, the stronger the magnet you become, the greater you're going to attract people and the greater you're going to repulse people. You go, really? Yeah. Do you think everybody loved Jesus? No, they crucified him. So I'm just, heads up. You know, I hate you. You're such a goody good shoes, you know, or, you know, you're driving me nuts. You're too loving, right? Nobody says it that way, but isn't that the truth? Come on now. How many are saying, you know, I could use God filling my heart with his love. I got both hands up. I could use that. More of his spirit, more of his love. Not my love, God's love. Supernatural love. Love that will help me to love my mate, my spouse, when maybe I'm not in agreement with them or maybe they're driving me crazy at this time in life. But I need your love to love them more perfectly. Maybe I need this love to, you know, I have a, a child that's, you know, a wayward child that's, you know, demanding so much from me. And you know what? I, I, I feel like all my resources are spent. I'm on empty. My tank is on empty. 
But here I am today. I'm going to open my heart to God. Let the spiritual love flow into me and fill my love battery right up so I can go out here this week and say, you know, God, help me to just stay on full. Help me to just stay on full. I just want to love people. And I want to use what you've given me as a a body member, as a member of the body of Christ. I want to use my gifts for your glory. I want to serve faithfully. I want to serve effectively. You know, even if nobody gives me credit, you know what? I know you're watching. And I know one day I'm going to get credit in the time it really matters before the throne of grace. So, Father, we come to you today and we recognize our spiritual poverty. We know that it's so easy we can get irked and frustrated and irritated. and Even good people can get upset with each other. Even people who love each other can get frustrated with each other. We recognize our own bankruptcy. We pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would invade this place. You would invade our hearts with your love. That we would be far more gracious to each other, far more forgiving, far more supportive, far more understanding, Lord. And that we would value each other at a far higher level. We would not take each other for granted, Father. For each one brings something special. Each person is a gift. Each person is unique. And they're bringing some flavor into our lives. And we want to thank you and celebrate their lives. We thank you that there's not one person that's hearing my voice that is not a meaningful, significant person in your kingdom. You care about people. And I pray, Father, you'll help us to reflect that. You'll help us when we work with each other that we will have that lubrication of love flowing so that there will not be friction and frustration and upset. But Lord, we will just be gracious and kind and understanding. And it's my